Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm excited about the guests that we have today because we're going to be talking a lot about regulated markets. So without further ado, Asab Wan from Hippo, welcome on board. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. So originally from Israel, I mean, we, we were talking about the battle of accents here because I'm also from Spain. So how, how is life growing uh, there in, in, in Israel, the, the startup nation? Uh, it, it, it's awesome. So, you know, I, I'm a proud Israeli. I can't get rid of this crappy accent, no matter what I'm doing. I'm in an age where my kids are giving me shit about my accent, which is a problem. Uh, but it's good. And I think regulated industries are probably the best fit for uh, Israeli entrepreneurs because we are uh, very skeptic to regulation. We're not very good in following rules. And we think that every uh, law is potentially meant to be broken. So uh, regulated industries are a perfect fit for Israelis. Got it. And I see that that you have, in terms of, of background, I mean, you, you did a little bit of law. Is that right? Yeah, amongst the, uh, uh, you know, amongst the, the, the stuff that I did, I actually also have a law degree. Got it. I mean, I also have a law degree, so I understand what it means to be a recovering lawyer in, in one way or another. So that's I was it. Never a lawyer. <laughs> I was, luckily for me, I was never a lawyer, which was a very, un, uh, you know, uh, Jewishy mothery kind of thing that, that my, my mom was like, how, how can you like have a law degree and not finish and graduate and be a lawyer? So I graduated yeah. the thing, but I didn't finish the internship because I went into entrepreneurship at that point of time. Got it. So why don't we talk about how you started, how you got the entrepreneurial bug? Because I understand that uh, right after school, your first job, that was at a, as an account manager, right, at Tamir Fishman. But then right after that, you went into Intel Capital to, to become a, an investment associate. So, so was that before you started as a founder or, be, or after? Oh, so I did, you know, this is like the LinkedIn kind of thing, which is always... Uh make a shorter kind of more succinct thing. I actually, so I started working as a, as a trader, basically, in an Israeli investment bank. And I started working as a trader, basically trading at night, U.S. securities, while studying in the day. So in Israel, what happened is we all do the military. And because of that, 
we were doing our undergrad when we were uh, slightly older. And I was a captain in the Air Force. So when I started my undergrad, I was 24. And my parents said, if you want to live in Tel Aviv by yourself, we're not paying for it. Just work. And that basically forced me to find a work. And I didn't want to just be a waiter. So I saw I, I was able to finagle myself into working as a as kind of like a, a junior trader and trading at night and working in the day. These were the heydays of the internet bubble, uh, 1998, 99, and stuff like that. And uh, a bunch of us in the bank thought that we can actually offer something that wasn't offered and we, we found was very time consuming. Basically, think of it as an E-Trade for employee stock options, enabling uh, employees to trade their uh, stock options just like you, 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 you trade your... Uh, basically your stocks. Up until then, it was a very manual process. You had to go to the CFO. He had to sign that Alejandro, you have this amount of shares. This is the strike price. This is the vesting period and all of that. Then you need to call the investment bank, fax something. You had two options. It was very manual and really, really painful. And we thought, why can't we manage the database and enable uh, the employees to actually exercise like everybody else does on E-Trade and online? So we left the bank. We started this company, and then... Uh, what was the name? Uh, a, a very creative name. It, it used to be called WES, which used to stand for uh, It wasn't a startup. It was like a service company. And because of that, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't funded. and wasn't, It was a service business that we we're going to offer this service to different uh, public companies. Uh, it, it was a really interesting time. We set up the company. The company was doing really, really well. And then the market collapsed. If the, when the market collapsed, we, we were basically weren't making any money. So we, I started thinking of what we can do with that. And the solution that I came up with, let's offer basically a hedging. on Because I'm managing Alejandro's uh, pool. And I know that you're going to have a grant that's going to be released in October 2019. And I know your strike prices. And I know the stock price. So basically offering you insurance on your on your uh, options that are going to be vested. Now, you can't tell an employee that you're going to offer them an option on the option because you're never going to finish that. So you basically tell that you frame it as an insurance. And uh, that's basically what we did. Uh, at the end of the thing, we were acquired by one of the U.S. banks. And then I joined Intel Capital. And, and okay, really cool. And, and that, how, how big was the company when, when you did the acquisition? Oh, tiny. Uh, like, tiny. Uh, we were like four kind of like founders and then six more people. Like it was a, it wasn't like a venture back kind of thing. Got it. So was it like a big shock to go to the other side of the table? Oh, we didn't even go to the other side of the table. It was, <laughs> it was like, it was the, like, within a very, very short time, uh, time span, uh, there were like four acquisitions that negated our acquisition. What I mean is that, uh, you know, I think Emberston Quest was bought by, J.P. Morgan or by Chase, and then Chase was bought by J.P. Morgan. We basically started this whole uh, consolidation going when you think about it like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I understand. So I guess I, ask, I guess during your time in, in Intel, like, did you make, like, any investments uh, that were interesting? Did you, like, identify certain patterns from founders that, that you know, kind of, like, help you identify, like, what, what a successful founder looks like? Yeah, I wish I can take credit for something like that. A, I was a junior member of the team. And because of that, uh, 
you you have several ways to actually grow. And my belief in growing and that, you know, in the venture capital as a junior person was to find all of the non-sexy industries that nobody wants to take and, and drill into them. So my analysis as a person in Intel Capital at that point of time was, uh, it's not my analysis, it's actually the, the, more of the funds uh, analysis, was that there are several instigators for you to change a computer. And uh, one of them was batteries. At that point of time, it was just about the transition between desktop to uh, laptops. So I think still at that point of time, more than 50% of the, of the computers that were acquired were desktops. So they were shifting into laptops, and Senatrino was the chip that Intel came up with. And the biggest pain in laptops was that the battery lasts for like you know an hour and a half. So we were looking, and I was looking, because nobody wants to take that position, into different uh, batteries technologies. Yeah. That was one thing. And the second instigator that I was looking, which was actually a lot closer to, was video games. And if you recall, when you grow up, uh, every once in every year or so, there's a new video game that requires a, a stronger hardware, and you nag your dad, I really need a new computer. I need da, da, da. And I, this was an instigator for why you actually need to change the computer. Uh, so this was, you know, two significant instigators. There was also a new operating system. Every time Windows came up with a new thing, you kind of need to replace your computer. There were several other stuff, but nobody wanted to take batteries and nobody wanted to take video games and... That's how I started my, my career in Intercapital, focusing on batteries technologies and focused into uh, video games. So then, so then why did you make the switch to McKinsey? The, the, the switch to McKinsey was slightly different. So I was, at that point of time, I was around 29 years old, basically, uh, you know, was head down in, 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 you know, from the military, working like crazy, throughout Intel Capital, uh, I, I wanted a break, I wanted to diversify myself, I wanted to broaden my horizons, and I decided I want to go to a bit to business school. Uh, fortunate enough to go to University of Chicago, so did University of Chicago, and then decided after that where I want to work in, and I went to McKinsey. I always have this discussion, and I, and I love McKinsey, and I think it's one of the places that basically contributed a lot to my career. I have an amazing network. I love every person I work with over there, and, and it professionalized me significantly. But I'm probably one of the worst uh, consultants you can find, which I think is very counter to... I don't think that a very strong entrepreneur can be a very strong consultant. I think it, there, there's, there's something which is the complete opposite. Entrepreneurs have a bug that they just want to fix something and jump right in it, and the solution doesn't need to be 100% uh, done. And consultants are about consulting and, and basically handing over the solution to someone else. And it needs to be 150% right and, and, you know, and, and understanding the politics and organization. So it's a very different thing. I took the McKinsey job, uh, I usually say it from all of the other reasons. Uh, I wanted to live in New York. I needed someone to take care of the visa. I wanted a company which is uh, strong and international and I can potentially uh, go back to Israel. I was single at that point of time, so I thought, oh, that's going to be cool. I can basically take an assignment in Israel and maybe find a woman. It was all of these kind of discussions rather than where well, my passion lies, what I want to do, and things like that. Uh, and then probably all of, the, these, all of the above is the reasons why my career in McKinsey wasn't that uh, glorious. And why do you think that 
so many, I mean, I've met so many founders that are coming from McKinsey and, and many, many of them have been so widely successful. Why, why is that the case? I think the company is amazing at recruiting. I think it's, it's an amazing training ground. The company is very supportive of, uh, of basically the people that left the company as well. I think, and then there is another component, which I think is pretty material. Uh, think about a McKinsey study. You take a random person, you take an Asaf who doesn't have a freaking clue about an industry, and within a span of a month, I, I have a, a, a strong enough grasp to talk with a CEO of an insurance company, with a CEO of an investment bank, with a CEO of a retail company or a biotech company. It, it basically gives you the confidence that smart people can learn any new industry in a very fast way and, and be competent. That's one. The second thing, it demystifies for you how big companies are working. When you come in from the outside, you think this company is amazing. It's, a, you know, it's unbreakable. It's, it's, everything is done uh, in a very professional way. There's no lack of, of you know, there's no issues. And then you're looking at it, you have an inside view of the company, and you're like, oh, that's broken, that's broken, this is like this. And that, that. You get a very uh, realistic view, which demystifies big company for you, and basically give you the confidence that you can take over whatever, and you do it in a very structured and organized way. So I, I think that McKinsey is a perfect uh, ground to launch uh, entrepreneurs, and it's usually the people that realize that McKinsey as a company is not the, the right path for them to move forward. But the company is an amazing recruiter, crazy amount of talent, very supportive, and you learn a lot from it. And they did launch you again as an entrepreneur. So what was this next experience like? Uh, next experience, I went back to Israel and co-started basically, uh, two companies. So, uh, one company that we started built the largest multi-tenant tower business in India. So we built, uh, a cellular tower business where we own 11, 11,000 towers, actual cell towers, 60 foot towers, kind of like American towers and crown castle in the U S. Uh, we, we, we looked at different business models in, in telco, and we found that this is a business model that we really, really like. It's relatively high capex, but the, the returns are really, really good if you do it properly. And this was the age of brick. So we analyzed mostly into you know, Brazil, Russia, India, and, and China. We thought that it's not a valid business for China. Uh, Brazil had kind of like this this business going on before Russia was too much oligarch control and you couldn't do too much stuff because of several of the cellular providers. And we thought that India is a really interesting marketplace uh, you know, place for that. So that's where we launched. That was the first one. And in parallel, we launched another company. We went around the world and bought the 2.5G Spectrum, which is the Spectrum that at that point of time was mobile WiMAX uh, shifted later to LTE. And the idea was actually not to build a voice uh, carrier, but to build a point-to-multipoint uh, wireless IP, basically an internet provider in a lot of uh, emerging markets where you don't really have good, good internet reception. And this was the time where the World Cup happened in South Africa, and there were a lot of fiber that goes under the, the ocean that basically enabled you to get... Uh, to get uh, a funnel, so which is not satellite related, 
And we went and bought the Spectrum in quite a few markets. As, uh, I think Mozambique, Uganda, Tanzania, Cote d'Ivoire, Congo, DRC, uh, Sri Lanka, a lot of these places. And yeah. the, the thought was to launch this wireless IP provider. We started launching it in Mozambique and Uganda. We were in the middle of a, of a massive funding round because we needed a lot of money for CapEx. And then uh, 2008 happened on us in the middle of this funding round. And uh, we kind of had to narrow down everything and just focus on the several operations that we had running. So what, what, what ended up being the outcome? Uh, we, we did like small acquisitions of the, of the local kind of companies. It wasn't a big exit. The other company, the telco company in India, is very much alive and kicking. My guess, 1,500 employees now. Really, really solid, positive business, and it's going. Uh, what personally happened to me was that uh, I found uh, my wife, uh, was way smarter and uh, accomplished and aggressive than me. And she decided she wants to do her master's. So I find myself in Boston where she was pursuing her master's. And you realize that the more senior you are in a company, the less likely you are to be able to work remotely. Uh, works if you're like an engineer. It doesn't really work if you're the chief business, business officer and stuff like that. Because you need to, to have the chats with the CFO and the CEO and the president. It just doesn't work. So I actually, I, I, I pulled out of the previous company, still had my shares, and moved to Boston and was wondering whether I wanted to be a VC again and stuff like that, but actually started a completely different business. And this uh, was Sabi, right? It was Sabi. Okay. So, so, then, so then how, why, why did you decide to go with Sabi and, and what was the process of incubating the idea behind Sabi? Sure. So uh, if I take a step up, up just to look at my, you know, my view on entrepreneurship, then, then I think there's different ways to start a venture. Uh, I think option one to start a venture, which my guess is around 45% of the venture that are getting started, is domain expertise. It's everything which is more uh, deep tech. It's, uh, I'm a chip designer, and I thought there's a way better, you know, there's a better way to, to design a chip. I'm a cyber guy. I'm a, you know, even enterprise software to some extent, but basically anything that has to do with optics, with storage, anything that has to do with that, it's not that Alejandro and Asaf are brainstorming on a Saturday night. They're like, I actually think there's a way better storage solution. We should do it as a sun. And I, it just doesn't work like that. It's a domain expertise thing. And this was how most of the ventures used to be started in like the 90s and stuff like that. And then yeah. came the shift to more consumer and different uh, kind of ventures, which is the other 45%, which is usually need-based. Uh, you know, Alejandro and Asaf are sitting in a, on Saturday night, and I'm like, I can't believe there was no way to do X. Or I was browsing the web, and I figured I can't buy Y, and stuff like that. And, and this is how most of the consumer business are started and stuff like that. So this is like together, roughly speaking, and it's not backed by anything other than random assumptions that I have. That's like 90%. And then you have the extra 10%, which I actually think are coming from one, uh, basically research-driven thing. So I have a technology came from university, came from a spin-out from a company or whatever. There's a technology that now we need to find a product for it or a market for it. So that's one. Or the other one, which is that's how sadly or luckily, I don't know, I'm usually starting my ventures, is it's, it's pure research-based. So I usually 
I don't have a, something that ticks me so much. I just sit down and I research and research and research. And then until I found several domains that I find interesting, I zoom in on them and I'm trying to find something that really excites me in them. So Sabi basically came, uh, came to, to be from that. And the premise of the company was that the average age of uh, basically, or let me phrase it differently, that the world is maturing and, and people that are maturing are a very different generation than the generation before. It's baby boomers. And yeah. people under the age of 50 have 91% of the net worth and 67% of the consumption and 61% of the net income, but only 5% of the marketing budget is actually catering to them. And if you think of the marketing budget that caters to them, it's, it, it, it derives into two things. 90% of it is, is looking at you as a customer and saying that everything is bad. So think, call it pharma. You, 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 know, you don't have friends, you have uh, lateral issues, you have this, whatever. It's like, it, it, it's, it's everything about negative and will make you good. Yeah. And the rest of the, 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 the 10% of this, you know, 5% kind of focus is the complete opposite, which is luxury. Because who has the money to buy a Chanel? Who has the money to buy a Ferrari? Who has the money to buy a first-class ticket? It's only people that are, you know, 50 and above. You market it as a, as a super hot woman who's like 25, but this is, you know, the, the person who buys Ferrari, if you look at the demographics of the, the people that buys it, it's 60-plus it's people. It's not 25-year-old people. And, and basically, this is what I saw, but I actually thought that this dichotomy between the age of the individuals and, the, and, and, you know, in the brands versus uh, the spending is, is completely uh, detached. And it brought me to my understanding that I think there's a place to build a brand for baby boomers that is focused on baby boomers as the customer and treating them in a certain way and not treating the caregivers or the kids that are supposed to buy them the products and addressing them in, an, in a very honest kind of level of discussion on what their needs are and how you solve it. And this was basically Sabi. Sabi is a Japanese term on the beauty and aging. And it's about the fact that, you know, having patina and passing of time, uh, you know, creates the beauty and generates something which is more, you know, with, with more character rather than, than something new. So a five name. old oak, uh, uh, basically hardwood floor is nicer than a new one because that shows the characteristics of it. And that was the, the, the reason for the name of the company. We started launching lines of products that are more focused towards uh, the baby boomers, a line of pill boxes, a line of canes, uh, walkers, uh, anti-slippery surfaces and grab board. Think about how grab bars are, are you know, in your house. Everything looks very geriatric, very old. Every once in a while, one of us is, is getting a, a room in an hotel, which is the handicap room, and it makes you feel really, really bad. And the thought was, why can't we design something which is a lot more ergonomically nice, uh, appeasing with the material, with the utility, with the look and feel, which doesn't have shame? Can we negate shame from these products? And I teamed up with some of the best designers in the world. We teamed up with Yves Bachar. We teamed up with uh, Barbara Oskarby, uh, with, with different like uh, of the, the biggest designers in the world. And each one of them did a line of products for us. And we sold it online and we sold it via different chains. And after around five to six years, uh, I sold the company. It wasn't a massive exit, 
And why did you sell? Because it was six years uh, of my life. I thought the alternative, uh, you know, basically that, that I'm starting to have a significant cost for myself to running this company. I stopped believing that I can build a really, really big company out of that. So I think that once you realize that, you know, the alternative costs for yourself are high and you get a decent offer, then I thought it's the right time to actually do that. The time so this, was, was this like a process that you generated or, or was it inbound? It was inbound. And, I, and we used to get several inbounds and I kept on uh, pushing them away. But when this one happened, it, it came in the right time for me. It came, you know, it was, it was uh, good enough of an offer that I thought, yeah, it's interesting enough. They were flexible enough to actually uh, avoid giving me a retention, which I had to negotiate quite significantly because I didn't nice. want to keep moving and, you know, work for Investing and resting. It's a, it's a painful process. I hear you. Exactly. So it was a good opportunity. And that's when, uh, you know, I, I sold Sabi. And how big was Sabi at, at the time of the transaction? Uh, it, it had something in the region of 10, 11, 12 million dollars in sales. It was basically profitable. We raised just a tad of money at the beginning. Uh, and, and the company was, you know, was profitable after a year and a half. So it was always running uh, from its own profitability. And there's no bigger curse for an entrepreneur to basically build a company that, A, close to break even a plus, and B, uh, is underfunded. It just, it's just a massive curse. You can't do any, any big moves, which is really, really problematic. So did you, did you, was this like, like you were saying, was this all self-funded or was there like any like VC investment in it? No, not VCs, some angels and friends and family and stuff like that. And then, right. then self-funded, yes. Got it. And the terms were uh, disclosed of the transaction, are those public? No, no, it wasn't public. Uh, okay. you know, it was a private transaction, uh, not material enough for, for, for uh, sadly, for, for the acquirer. Got it. I hear you. I hear you. So, so then let's talk about your latest uh, rodeo. Let's talk about Hippo Insurance. So how does Hippo Insurance come to life? Share with us what is that incubation process? First thing you see, there's a, a clear linear line from uh, working in trading, uh, doing VC, starting a telecom business, starting a product for the aging population and move to insurance. It's like a clear line. So, of course, that was well was due to be my next business. Right. Uh, there are several characteristics of that, which is actually, when I'm thinking now, are very much attributable to that. So think about a lot of the lessons that I learned from the previous thing. A, I wanted a business that has uh, ongoing revenue. I didn't want to, when you're doing a hardware company, every year you start from zero, and then you, you need to sell your, your product. I wanted something that has a base, and has a low churn and actually keeps on paying. And insurance is a perfect product for that. Uh, not that that's how I came to insurance. I'm just giving you like maybe in the you know in my psyche how, how I came to you know what I was looking for. The second yeah. thing is I, I was actively looking for a really really big market because I think you work the same amount of hours if if you're going to do nicer pens or if you're going to build uh, you know if you're going to solve world angle. You have a finite number of hours in the day, and as an entrepreneur, you're passionate, you want to work the same amount of, of time. So might as well find something which is big. Uh, I'm Israeli, as I so I told you that, you know, I, I, uh, regulated industries do not scare me. And uh, my dad used to work in insurance for all his life, so 
probably that was in the back of my mind as a Balkan industry as well. Yeah. But let's uh, let's. So what what happened? So, is so, so I yeah. guess I guess from 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 Xavi, if you had to name the biggest takeaway, just one, what would that be? Don't ever do hardware. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Well, that, that fair enough. And why? It's such a hard. Uh, it's such a hard work to do hardware. It's magical because you actually see people using a product that you came up with. However, the cycle is long, the, you know, and then you add tooling and, and, and fulfillment and shipping. And, and you, just when you're hitting your stride, then you realize there's a crazy stuff that Apple is lo- are launching their new iPhone and they bought all of the distribution and all of the shipping containers out of China or whatever for a certain two months. And now you're stuck with like, a crazy amount of inventory that you need to send to Target that you can't send because it costs you. There's all of these things because it's a physical product, yeah. uh, which I am not, uh, you know, wishing anybody. So it sounds like too many balls in the air, up in the air. So it makes sense. So how, how do you meet Iyal, your co-founder at Hippo? So I, I basically sat down for like several good months and, and, and came up with, uh, with what, what is Hippo. Uh, and one of the clear realization I had was that I need to find a co-founder. Sabi was a solo founder. And why? Why did you why did you realize that you needed a co-founder? What were you looking in in that person that you needed? So I, I, I looked at someone who was a very strong independent thinker, but as a, a flexibility of mind. So it would be opinionated. It would be different and non-correlated opinionated than, than me. So I was looking for a very strong technologies. But someone who's still going to be flexible enough, uh, I wanted someone I can get along with, which was important because this is like getting a founder in some ways is more than getting into a wedding because you can't really have a breakup. And the chances if you have a breakup, you're probably going to kill the company. And it it just doesn't work. You need someone that that compliments you and you trust. On the flip side, it doesn't need to be your best friend. It needs to be someone you really appreciate. I, I, then I have another uh, realization. So I have a belief that if you want to find someone for a role, go and talk to the strongest people in the role that you know. If you want to find uh, a CTO, I have a very limited uh, network of CTOs. So I want to go and interview the best CTOs that I know in the world and ask them, who do they think is really, very really strong? Who's potentially available and stuff like that? Because they have a calibration and they know who is available and who's good. So that's basically what I did. I made a list of the top 10 CTOs I know and went and talked to them. And three of them said, there is this guy, Eyal, that you have to meet. And he's one of the strongest and he's not going to be available for a long time and stuff like that. The second thing is I didn't want to be a sole founder anymore. Uh, it, it, it's a crazy pain. And why? But it's, why? Yeah, it's a crazy pain because, A, you have a limited amount of time and you can't do everything. But that's yeah. actually the smaller and more trivial stuff. I think it's a... Psychologically, you need another person. Uh, entrepreneurship is a ride where you have amazing days and crappy days. You go and meet an investor, he says it's the best thing you've ever seen. And on the same day, you can see someone says it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. There's 15 who's doing that and because of A, B, and C. And if you're by yourself, you're absorbing all of this by yourself. But if you have a co-founder, then uh, you have someone to mitigate that. As long as it's, you find the right co-founder who doesn't uh, escalate you, but it's actually uh, relaxing to you. And uh, this is what I found in Eyal. 
He's a very calm uh, individual. He's a very thoughtful uh, person. He's a very strong, independent thinker, and he's one of the best technologies uh, I think you have in the world now. That's really cool. I mean, and I agree with you. I mean, I remember uh, I, I've had like with with previous experiences building businesses. One one day, maybe in the morning, it was like I thought I was on top of the world, and then in the evening, I thought that the company was going to go down the toilet. So it's a I understand the feeling. So, so I guess let's talk about pulling the trigger on this. So then you get together with Iyal, there's a match, and then you start brainstorming on the concept. And then, and then at, at one point, you know, something clicks and, and you guys are like, this makes sense. Let's do this. So walk us through how that day looked like. So I'm actually going to take it a step because there's a couple of like other interests on, on like partnering with, with, with a co-founder. So one of the key things that I learned is we basically did a honeymoon uh, period for like a month or two. And in this honeymoon period, because I, I, the idea basically came for me and, and I had this thing, you know, I had like an affinity to it, but we wanted to know that we can actually work together. So we took a lot of walks together. We went for like a, a, a night out together several times, like, you know, overnight. And, and I think the important stuff to actually measure and work on with a potential co-founder that you don't know for forever because, you know, you worked in, in another company together is to work on all of the other stuff. What I mean is not to see that we both think exactly the same about the distribution strategy of the business, but to actually see that we're aligned with what is an exit scenario? $50 million, $500 million, $5 billion? Because if we're misaligned on that, and let's say I think I'm going to build a company for $5 billion, but my co-founder thinks that $50 million is an amazing uh, offer to sell the company, I'm telling you it's going to create a lot more clashes and misalignment than, than the business kind of, uh, of stuff. What is a lifestyle that you're actually seeing? Let's say he, he, you know, he calls all through the night and he comes to the office at noon, but I have two kids and I'm coming at 8 a.m. To, uh, to the office. Is it going to be a conflict? How is it, you know, the tech team is going to hire? Are going to be starting day at like 11 a.m. and the business people are going to start at 8 a.m.? That's going to create clashes and not going to be aligned. How, does, how do you view family? How do you view work-life balance? How do you view compensation for people? There's a lot of these things that are a lot more material. So you have a fit between the founders, then he sees my distribution as direct, and I see it as like uh, independent agents. That's, that's a business thing that's going to, you know, we're going to align and we're going to have responsibilities to solve it. But the other stuff of the personal aspect and the culture and the feel and the priorities and the values of the companies, that's where the company is going to be broken. And that's where we spend most of the time. Got it. And, and, and I'm glad that you actually touched on this, on, on setting up expectations, because in many instances, people go at it for the wrong reasons or with the wrong agenda. And, and that's actually something one of my previous businesses was in co-founders lab. And we actually were matching co-founders. We matched over 600,000 teams. So it was that was one of the main reasons why, because companies, one of the main reasons why companies fail is because of issues between co-founders. And the main reason why that happens is because people go at it for the wrong reasons and because there is no alignment from the beginning. So I'm glad that that you touched on that. So 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 then you have the alignment with EL and you think that and you guys know that this is gonna work. What's next? So uh it's an interesting business uh, in short tech and fintech because you can't have an MVP. 
because it's regulated business. And in order to put anything to the market, to a consumer, I need to have reinsurance and I need to have filing and I need to have claims and I need to do so much stuff because you're basically building a, a, an insurance company from scratch. So you need to do uh, a relatively big round. You need to find an investor that is an independent thinker and understand that this is what's fintech and is willing to bet on you, not in a way that, oh, let's do a smaller round of $400,000 as a safe and then prove something. And you need someone who's willing to bet slightly more. So our, our, you know, we had to go for a, a seed round, which was, I think, like a $3.5 million. I'm not saying massive, but not, uh, not tiny as well. Uh, you can't build too much stuff. So you need to bring yourself to a very high level of conviction and know anything, everything you can do you can on, on the market. So that's where we spend a lot of the time. We basically frame like different plans and different things like that and uh, started fine-tuning the, the, the belief of what the business is going to be. But fundraising was re- basically what we were doing. There's some businesses where, you know, we, we, we locked ourselves in a, in a room and came up with an MVP and started showing some traction. This is not that case. We were uh, on the fundraising trail relatively early. Got it. And we'll, we're going to talk about the, the fundraising, but the business model ended up being home insurance. Is that, is that right? Or what, what, what was yeah. the business model so that listeners really get it? So, so uh, in HIPAA insurance, what we basically do is we, we're modernizing home insurance. Home insurance is something that is basically stuck in the, in the 50s. And it's stuck in the 50s in several things. One, uh, if you're ever going to open your home insurance documents, which you're probably not going to do, you're going to realize that you're covered for stuff like fair codes and pewter boards and china and silverware, mausoleums and crypts and, and gold bullions. But your home office is not covered. And electronics are capped at $2,000. And if you have camping equipment and ski equipment and bicycle and strollers and stuff like that, they're usually capped or they're below the deductible and all kind of stuff like that. So we thought that's a problem. One. The second thing is 99% of the home insurance is being bought, is being sold by agents. The average age of an agent is 60. You need to spend an average of 35 minutes on the phone with them and then need to wait several days for them to come back after the underwriting is done and give you the concrete quote, which in 40% of the time is actually going to be changed. Uh, A lot of people in today's world don't want to spend that much of time with, with an agent, which many times they're going to try and say, Alejandro, uh, let me go come to your house at 8 p.m. in the night because they're going to try and find it as a, as a hook to upset you on life insurance and other products. And, this, uh, and there is a lack of clarity in all of that. So we thought there is a way to modernize, enable you to uh, go online or mobile and, and get a quote in less than 60 seconds, bind the policy in four minutes. But if you want to talk to an agent, we have a massive agency. We enable you to buy however you want the, the product. The product that we have is a lot more modern. It covers you for the right stuff. We analyze where the problems are lying with the, the insurance product, and you see that the problem is usually not that you're not going to get paid from the insurance company. is the fact that Alejandro thought is covered for something that is actually not covered for. So you had a tree in the backyard that lifted the sewage, and you're calling your agent and said, no, I'm really, really sorry, Alejandro. This is service line. And you were like, what the hell is that? And he said, that's what connects the municipality to your home, and it's actually not covered. And there's a bunch of these things. There's a water coming from, uh, this, from the sewage. That's not covered. That's called water back, backup. You have an explosion of your HVAC. That's not covered. You have, uh, I can give you a list of 30 of these things. And we thought that the problem is that people don't know what they have in, inside their insurance. 
and uh, the coverage uh, are not really connected to what people are actually covered for. So, so then why, why, why did you guys raise, uh, raise financing so quickly? Because people realize it's a $100 billion market. It's difficult to do it. The team that we have uh, is strong and can potentially do it. Uh, and it's an interesting bet. Now, when we were doing the, the, the seed round, it was in the world of InsurTech, which now it's called InsurTech. And it's a cool world. And it's a hot field in, in, in a VC world investments. When we were doing it, it wasn't. And it was really relatively difficult. It's actually more interesting because all of this stuff all of the points that we've raised, or that were raised against us, as a problem are turned into the, uh, the, the positive thing. People said it's highly regulatory. You know what it is. You need to register. You need to find a reinsurer. Uh, you need, I don't know, there were a bunch of stuff. You need to build a complete uh, policy management system. You need a call center. And, and we said, yes, we know all of that, but all of them are, are solvable problems and barrier to entry for other people. And Basically, the second when we were like finished doing all of that and it flipped to the later funding, everybody's like, oh, so you have all of the regulatory environments set up. You have the actuarial sciences set up. You have the reinsurance contract. You have these deals. You have your own claim center. Your own, so like, all of these became massive modes, which basically elevated the valuation and the proprietiveness of the company. And how, how much capital have you guys raised today? So we raised $109 million up until uh, now. We finished our C round around October. That was a $70 million round. Really cool. And I see there GGV, Felicis, Comcast, Horizons, uh, Sinai Ventures. I know this guy is good people. Uh, Fifth Wall. So, and Propel Venture Partners. So how did, you, how did you, like, let's say, because, look, you're a foreigner just like myself as well. And you got to build your network. And, and, and also, when I came here, I mean, I had no idea who to go to and how to do it. So, so how did you get in front of these people and how did you close them? I'm, I'm good at clawing my way into uh, meetings that I need to, to come into. Uh, so any, any, any lessons learned there, perhaps, that you can share for people that are on the same shoes that you were at? I, so I think, I think VC is a, person, is, is a people business. And I think networking is, is the very overused uh, word. I think, uh, I, I think the real networking is about depth rather than, than, than breadth. It's about finding people that you like and, and, and you know, staying in touch with them. And you bring them value and they bring you value as well. I have a lot of investors that I pitched the company early on. And it didn't go with the investment. But I, I, I appreciate the, the way of thinking. They were honest. They were transparent. And, and we stayed in touch. And a lot of them are, you know, good friends of mine now. And a lot of the leads that we're getting later on are from them. So it's people that basically didn't invest in me in, let's say, the seed or the A round. It's not their fault to do the B and C round, but they're, they're a really strong lead uh, gen for me to basically contact people that are doing B and C round and basically saying something like, uh, you should meet us off. Uh, we fucked up and we didn't invest in the company early on, but I really think should take a look at it and it's a, it's a very strong endorsement when it comes from the right people yeah no i hear you i hear you and and what what for example like operating in a in a in an industry i mean insurance is is really heavily regulated what's the um what would you say is the biggest challenge that that really you have to deal with so i think uh, the challenge with insurance is that there's no one challenge that, that now that the challenges are not that high but there are 50 of them. 
And I think that's where the problem. So it's not a technology thing where we can do something and it's going to be. Uh, I'm not reinventing insurance form from scratch. I'm not saying that everybody that's name is Alejandro and has a Spanish accent, I'm going to give him a 25% discount. It's not that I'm reinvesting, reinventing the entire thing, but I'm improving every component to, to basically do a better call center, a better underwriting, a better uh, experience, a better in everything. Some of them are 10% better. Some of them are, you know, 3x better. And for me, the number one folk, uh, thing that it enables you to do in InsurTech is realignment on the customer. I think the, comp- the, the industry forgot who the customers are. For 100 years, the customer were basically uh, agents. And they need to appease the agents and give them tools and give them the right kind of terms. And they forgot that the actual customer is the end customer, which is the person actually buying the insurance, which in insurance jargon, it's not even called, it doesn't even call a customer, it's called a policy order. And I think that's, that's a fucked up process. We brought back the focus on what does Alejandro needs as a customer? How can we uh, help give you the product that you need to, to have? How are making sure that you're insured for what you should be insured for? What other services can I give you? We're helping our customers with a lot of uh, proactive services. We send someone to clean your gutters once a year. Check your air filters. Make sure that your plumbing system is intact. We'll send you key duplicates. We'll send you IoT device to cater to water leaks and stuff like that. It's about enhancing the relationship we have with the customers while bringing you significant value. And and during this process of really like um, the um, redeveloping and embracing the customer experience and doing that customer development side, which 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 is critical. And obviously, you guys take it seriously. Has there been like in your journey as an entrepreneur like a breakthrough moment that you were like yes, I got to take care of the customers and here's how I need to be doing it. No, no. So we, we started that the customer is the focus. It wasn't, it was never a breakthrough moment. It's about the customer is the focus and let's, uh, let, let's see what we can do. Now, there, there was a different like thought process that kept on moving. At the beginning, when we were brainstorming, we said, let's not sell Alejandro uh, insurance at all. Let's sell you a complete package of IoT device and by the way, let's throw in insurance is a side product. They were trying to play with that kind of, uh, of thought process. And then you realize that, you know, regulation and all kind of stuff come into the mix and cost and then the world of hardware comes into play as well and data. But the process and the thought was from the get-go that the current experience that you have is crappy and we can change this entire thing and do it better in a more cost-efficient way and take care of our customers in a way better, uh, you know, aspect. Our NPS score is 80. Our call center is being measured on NPS first. Everything that we're doing is customer-centric. And how do we take care of our customer and what, how we can bring them more value? Mm. So how, how big is uh, Hippo, Hippo Insurance today? Uh, so Hippo has just, just north of 100 employees. We have two offices. We have an Austin office, which I think is like a 60 people. And then we have a Mountain View office, which is around... 45-ish, you know, it might have moved by hiring a couple of people in the last week or so. Uh, we are covering uh, 16 states in the U.S., which is north of 50% of the U.S. coverage-wise of population. Uh, company still grows at a, at a crazy pace of like 15 to 20% month on month. Uh, that, that's basically it. We have high tens of thousands of customers and then, and then 
and growing really, really fast and loving really it. Cool. Really cool. So what's that, what does the, um, the future, that world where the vision of Hippo is completely realized, what does that world look like? Yeah, uh, so we usually have a saying that we start with world domination and we go from there. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, the, the, the idea is, uh, is this. Home insurance with, with all of its flavor, like condo insurance and, and investment properties and stuff like that and rentals, is something in the region of a $100 billion market. And it goes at 4 to 5% a year. We are tiny. We haven't even started scratching the surface. I think we can be uh, we can be a top five uh, insurance provider in the U.S. And until we're going to reach close to these things, uh, that's what we're going to focus on on home insurance and being the best home insurance company in the world. And we have a long way to go to get there, but we are very certain that we have the right blueprint on how to get there. Really cool, really cool. And you know, someone someone like you, um, you know, Asaf. You've been around the block. You've been on every single side of the table. I mean, every single side of the world, too. I mean, it's unbelievable, your experience. There's one question that I always ask the guests that I have on, on the show, and that is, knowing what you know now, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice to your younger self before launching a business, what would that be and why? Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh... So I think, I think what I basically said, that if, you, if you're working on solving a problem, solve the biggest problem you can. No use to sit down and think of incremental small things. If you're committing your life to something, which is what entrepreneurship is, commit it to something big. I love it. I love it. So Asaf, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? I have, uh, I have my email. It's uh, asaf.one at uh, myhippo.com. We believe in karma. We believe in helping wherever we can at any given point. Uh, I think this is one of the things that makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley, that people are approachable and would help you. And it's not a transactory kind of environment. So feel free to reach out to me. I love it. Paying it forward. I love it. Well, Asaf, thank you so much for being in the Dealmaker Show today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. Thanks so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.